Good morning. How are you doing? Good. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. So let me ask you a fun question. Anybody like to imagine things? Do we have any imaginers? Uh, when was the last time that you allowed yourself to ask the question, what if? When was the last time that you allowed yourself to be slightly illogical, maybe a little irrational, and actually jump into something knowing that it was kind of ridiculous and over the top and probably not possible, but you were still going to jump into it anyway? When was the last time that, that, that you allowed your life to be filled with wonder or awe? In our culture, I don't think it, this is a shock to anybody, but we tend to value rationality and logic above everything else. Uh, we, we don't tend to value dreaming very much, uh, except for in hyperbole. Uh, when somebody actually does something uh, living out a dream, we kind of question them and wonder uh, if their sanity's still there or if they've just gone off the deep end. We don't leave a lot of space for this in our life, except for when you're a kid, right? For a few short years, you get to be awestruck, you get to be filled with wonder, you get to be illogical, and then it ends. But for those few short years, it's good. G.K. Chesterton says this, what was wonderful about childhood is that anything in it was a wonder. It was not merely a world full of miracles, it was a miraculous world. I like that. So what I want to do to start us off is I want us to watch a clip from a guy named Mac Barnett. He's a children's author, and he's going to talk about allowing kids to kind of dive headfirst into a world of wonder. So watch this. I used to be a summer camp counselor. I would do it on my summers off from college, and uh, I loved it. Uh, I, I, it was a sports summer camp for four to six-year-olds. I was in charge of the four-year-olds, which is good because uh, four-year-olds can't play sports, and neither can I. Uh, I play sports on like a four-year-old level. So what would happen is, is the, the kids would like dribble around some cones and then get hot, and then they would go sit underneath a tree where I was already sitting. And I would just make up stories and tell them to them. And I would tell them stories about my life. I would tell them about how on the weekends I would go home and I would spy for the Queen of England. And uh, soon other kids who weren't even in my group of kids, you know, they, they would come up to me and they'd say, you're Mac Barnett, right? You're the guy who spies for the Queen of England. And I had been waiting my whole life for strangers to come up and ask me that question. I think that the pinnacle of this for me, I'll never forget this, there was this little girl named Riley, she was tiny. And she used to always take out her lunch every day, and she would throw out uh, her fruit. She would just take her fruit, her mom packed her melon every day, and she would just throw it in the ivy. And then she would eat, like, fruit snacks <laughs> and pudding cups. And I was like, Riley, you can't do that. You, you have to eat the fruit. And she was like, why? And I was like, well, when you throw the fruit in the ivy, pretty soon we're gonna have, it's going to be overgrown with melons. Which was why I think I ended up uh, telling stories to children and not being a nutritionist for children. Um, and so Riley was like, that will never happen. That's not going to happen. And so on uh, the last day of camp, I got up early and I got a big cantaloupe from the grocery store. And I hid it in the ivy. And then at lunchtime, I was like, Riley, why don't you go over there and see what you've done? And... 
She went trudging through the ivy, and then her eyes just got so wide, and she pulled out this melon that was bigger than her head. And then all the kids ran over there and rushed around her, and, and one of the kids was like, hey, why is there a sticker on this? <laughs> and I was like, that is also why I say, do not throw your stickers in the ivy. Put them in the trash can, it ruins nature when you do this. And Riley carried that melon around with her all day. Uh, and she was so proud. And you know, Riley knew she didn't grow a melon in seven days, but she also knew that she did. I love that. Riley knew that she didn't create a melon in seven days, but she also knew that she did. You know, one of my favorite types of books to read is kids' fantasy novels. And I like read them and then I reread them and then I reread them. Like every year, my favorite ones I want to reread. And books like The Chronicles of Narnia. And one of the reasons that I love those books is that because there's always this magical point somewhere towards the beginning where the main characters are invited into something. Often there's somebody that comes in and kind of takes their hand and says, do you want to jump into it? Do you want to leap into this picture that you think is coming alive? Do you want to walk into this wardrobe that looks ridiculous? It's just filled with, you know, mothy old coats. Do you want to jump into a dream? And then they take them into it. And I think, friends, that God kind of works the same way. Eugene Peterson says this, God at work means surprise puzzlement and astonishment. Without wonder, we approach life as a self-help project. Wonder, that astonished willingness to stop what we are doing, to stand still, open-eyed and open-handed, ready to take in what is more and other. That's a great definition for wonder, I think. An astonished willingness to take in what is more and other. And so this morning, we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 47. We've been doing a series through Ezekiel, and we're going to keep going in this. And we're going to read one of Ezekiel's famous crazy visions. Uh, but I think this one's a little bit more on the, on the wonderful side and a little less on the crazy side uh, this morning. But it's still kind of fanciful. It's outside of what we would expect. And Ezekiel shown a picture of what God's plan is, of what God wants to do in our world, a plan that one day the kingdom of God will actually change everything. And so this morning, I think that Jesus is the guy in the fantasy novel holding out his hand to us saying, are you ready to jump in? Are you ready to take a risk to be filled with wonder, to be filled with awe by my plan for your life. So let's pray, and then we're going to read this. Holy Spirit, I just ask for you to come and to just fill us even more this morning. We just say that we love you, Jesus. We, we're so grateful for your presence. We, we're so grateful that your plans are just night and day, head and shoulders above and beyond anything that we would have made up. They're so good. They're so filled with, with uh, 
just amazing blessing that it's beyond what we would even think uh, of asking for. And so I pray this morning that you will help us to take that leap, to follow you, to jump into your vision of what you want our world to look like this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have a Bible, open up to Ezekiel 47. It's kind of smack in the middle, if you don't know where it is. Open to the middle and start flipping a little bit. Ezekiel chapter 47. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the front and in the back you can grab at any time. Let's read this together. It says, In my vision the man brought me back to the temple, entrance of the temple. There I saw a stream flowing beneath the door of the temple and passing to the right of the altar. The man brought me outside, and there I could see water flowing out through the gateway. Measuring as he went, he took me along the stream for 1,750 feet and then led me across. The water was up to my ankles. He measured off another 1,750 feet and led me across again, and this time the water was up to my knees. After another 1,750 feet, it was up to my waist. And then he measured another, and the, the river was too deep to walk across. It was deep enough to swim in, but too deep to walk through. And he asked me, have you been watching, son of man? Then he led me back along the riverbank. And when I returned, I was surprised by the sight of many trees growing on both sides of the river. And he said to me, this river flows through the desert into the Dead Sea. The waters of this stream will make, salty, make the salty waters of the Dead Sea fresh and pure. There will be swarms of living things wherever the water of this river flows. Fish will abound in the Dead Sea, for its waters will become fresh. Life will flourish wherever this water flows. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow along both sides of the river. The leaves of these trees will never turn brown and fall. There will always be fruit on their branches. There will be a new crop every month, for they're watered by the river flowing from the temple. The fruit will be for food and the leaves for healing. So for me, when I started studying this passage a week or so ago, I was just kind of struck by it. Because when you start to dig into it, it's just somewhat amazing. It's outside of the expected. It's outside, honestly, of the, the possible. It's impossible for this to happen. And I was struck by this picture of life and hope. And as I read it, I felt like, for me, my heart was kind of crying out and saying, yes, can this actually happen? Can this really come true? And then as I prayed about it a little bit, I felt like Jesus kind of gave me a better question to ask. And that was this, why not? Why couldn't this come true? And so this morning, that's what I want to go on. I want to go on a journey from asking what if to saying why not? Why can't this be our reality here today? So let's jump into this. Let's start with the what if. What if this happens? It would mean a river that grows and never shrinks. It says, a stream flowing from beneath the door of the temple, and then the water was up to my ankles. Kept going, and the water was up to my knees. Again, it was up to my waist. 
and he kept going. It's about 1.3 miles out, and the river was deep enough to swim in, but too deep to walk through. So as we read this, I don't want us to get so caught up in some of the, the imagery that we forget the most important fact about this whole story, and that's where it begins. What is the source of this river? The source is in the presence of God. It's in the temple, which is an unlikely spot for a river to begin, right? Uh, but it starts right in the center, right in the place of the presence of God, and yet it's really small where it begins, like really small. The word that we translate the Hebrew into is stream, uh, which is actually like way too big of a term uh, to use for how much water is actually at the very beginning. Uh, if we were reading it in the original Hebrew, we would realize that what Ezekiel actually saw was more like a small jar that was poured out. The beginning of this huge river that stretches 20 miles from the temple to the Dead Sea, that keeps getting deeper and deeper and wider and wider the farther it goes, starts with just a little jar being poured out. How? You know, for the Israelites, the, the temple, the Holy of Holies, was the main place to worship. It was the spot you wanted it to be. It was like front row at fill-in-the-blank megachurch. You know, it was the spot where you're like, you got the smoke on you and the power. No, uh, but it's the spot that you wanted to be. It was like, it was powerful. And yet only one person a year got to go in. And they got to do all, all of this stuff to get there. You know, they got to purify themselves. They got to give a lot of offerings. Uh, they can't eat this. They can't touch that. They can't go and interact with this person. One person a year. And so the only way that the rest of us could ever figure out what it's like in the main spot of God's presence here on earth is to catch a couple of crumbs from the priest after he came out. That's the only way. Other than that, we're just left stranded, hoping that we can figure out something about it. There was nothing, nothing for most of us. Everyone else had to stay outside. But this picture overturns that idea completely. The Israelites would have expected the, the temple, the Holy of Holies, to be like this bottomless chasm with a geyser sprouting, like spurting water like 20 feet in the air. And that out of that, this river was being created because that would be the automatic spot to have the most water for it to be the most powerful. Instead, God says, nope, that's a little jar. And yet 20 miles away, I'm going to take a deadly body of water and turn it life-giving. How in the heck does that happen? It's completely opposite of what anyone would have expected when they encountered this thing. As Christopher Wright said, if there was, any, if there was ever any suspicion that God was there merely for his own benefit, selfishly relishing the offerings and sacrifices... This image dispels it. I want you to catch this last sentence because this is probably the most powerful reality that you can encounter in the kingdom of God. With God, the flow of benefit is always in the opposite direction. God doesn't do anything just for himself. He's always blessing us. He's always making it flow towards us. He's always reaching out to us. His plans are always focused 
on us. His good gifts are always coming our way. God isn't just looking for a bathtub of his own presence to soak in. He wants to bring life to an entire region. He wants to change everything around him for the good. The point where the presence of God is supposed to be the strongest, it's actually the smallest. It's like a leaky faucet that can't be fixed. It's just trickling along. And the place where you would expect it to have died off and nothing to be left other than a little trickle is where it's actually the strongest, 20 miles away. Jesus loves to leave us in awe. So what if this river was a reality? It would mean a river so filled with life that dead things can't stay dead, that growth never ends, and that healing always continues. Verses 8 and 9 the waters will make the salty waters of the Dead Sea fresh and pure. There will be swarms of living things where the water of this river flows. Life will flourish wherever this river flows. Okay, let's be logical for a second. I know you're all dying too, so let's, let's talk logic. Let's talk reality, right, for a little second. So the Dead Sea, fun fact time, is 9.6 times saltier than any ocean almost 10 times saltier than any ocean. It is, it is completely unable to support life. It's just not possible. Nothing can live within it unless it's something that is kind of like self-supporting because there are no nutrients to gain from this water because there's too much salt. It is a dying ground, not a breeding ground. Nothing can happen in it. In fact, Scientists have tried to figure out how to, how to reverse it because it's, it's not doing great things for the earth underneath it. It's creating some sinkholes and stuff like that. So they've tried to figure out. And the only thing that they can figure out is that you just got to get a ton of sand or dirt and dump it and just fill the whole thing up and then start over with something else. There's no physical possible way to actually make this turn into a life-supporting body of water. None. It can't happen. And yet, God says that that's what he wants to do. That's what he tells us here. He says that he wants to make this into a life-supporting body of water. Does it sound far-fetched? Yes. Does it sound illogical? Yes. Does it sound like something that could not happen? Yes. Then step into God's dream. Step into his plan. Because this is what he's saying that he wants to see happen all throughout the world. And here's the good news. This is pointing, this whole vision is pointing us somewhere. Jesus is showing us what his plan is. He's saying there's going to come a day where fresh water and salt water, where life and death, so to speak, come and they meet. And when that happens, when they meet in a powerful way, Nothing in between them, no barrier stopping them. Only one is going to be left standing. One thing will remain at that moment, and the other will be completely obliterated. When that happens, life is the only thing that will remain. Death will be no more. It won't be a possibility at that moment. The curse will be broken. All will be healthy. All will be whole. All will live abundantly. All will be changed and it won't stop happening. 
It's just going to keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going. It's like these trees. They're never going to go brown and wither. They're just going to keep reproducing and reproducing and reproducing and reproducing. This is God's plan for the earth. The favorite British author of mine is a guy named Simon Ponsonby, and he says this, the river of God is more than enough. We need only to look to Jesus and his power to remove the rubble, the accumulation of sin, bondage, enemy footholds, resentments, bitterness, faithlessness, lack of spiritual, uh, spiritual desire. And the spirit will rush forward, turning barrenness into beauty, desert into oasis, and struggle into satisfaction. That's what the river of God brings. That's what the presence of God brings to our lives. So how do we turn what if into why not? How do we turn this into a reality for us here today and not just some pretty picture that was painted thousands of years ago? How does this matter to us here in Massachusetts today? Well, there's the beautiful and there's some frustrating aspects of this. And one of the frustrating aspects for us is that God doesn't want to do this on his own. He wants us to be a part of it. He wants us to partner with him in making this happen here. He wants us to play a role in deepening the river. He wants us, so to speak, to take our jars and to pour them in to add to the river, because that's the only way that it gets bigger and deeper and wider the further that it gets from the source, is that if all of us who have encountered the source are jumping in, are pouring into this river that's growing, that's changing everything, we're each a trickle, and the result of our combined trickles, of our combined jars, is a mighty rushing river that changes everything that it touches. N.T. Wright says this, when the church is living out the kingdom of God, the word of God will spread powerfully and do its own work. Of course, no individual can attempt more than a fraction of this mission. That's why the mission is the work of the whole church the whole time. We all have a part to play. So this got me dreaming a little bit. So if the distance from the temple to the, Red, to the Dead Sea, not the Red Sea, the Dead Sea, is 20 miles, 20, 21 miles, 20 miles of life. So what if here, what would our 20 miles be? And so I got a map and I did a radius because that's what you do when you want to start really getting into the nitty gritty, right? And here's what I realized. Our 20 miles would look something like this. It would look past Waltham and past Worcester. It would look almost all the way up to Lemonster and almost all the way down to Pawtucket. That entire radius would be filled with the presence, the life-changing power of Jesus. And that got me excited because that's something that I want to see happen. That's something that God wants to see happen. What would it look like if that entire area was filled with the presence of God, was filled with the power of Jesus? How would that affect our towns? How would that affect our governments? How would that affect our businesses, our schools, our neighbors, our friends, our kids, our kids' friends? What would that change if the presence of God was covering that entire area? What would that mean for this part of Massachusetts? 
listen to me on this. I believe that this is God's will. I'm not just saying some like fanciful, like hope for whatever. Like, I think that this is actually what Jesus wants. I think he wants this to be true for us. He wants his presence to be covering our radius and even more. He wants to cover the entire earth with his presence. He wants this to be real. No question, this is his desire. So let me get a little bit more personal. Do we want it? Do we want it? Because for me, I'm desperate to see this happen. I want every single day to be marked by meeting a new person who has encountered Jesus. Every single day. Every day of my life. I want every single day to be encountering something that I can't explain. And the only answer that I can have is, but God. I want the presence of God to be such unavoidable news throughout this area that no one can run away from it. They may not all want to jump into it yet, but they can't run away from it because it's there. It's in their face. It's reality. It's truth. It's what's happening around them. I want our streets to be filled with this. I want our towns to be filled with this. I want our friends to be filled with this. I want this to be real here. And Jesus wants this too. It's not a hopeful idea. It's not illogical. It's not daydreaming. It's not wishful. It's not childish. It's not naive. It's the, it's the plan and the purpose of the most powerful being anywhere. It's what he wants. And he wants to bring it here. So how can we make this a reality? How do we go from what if to why not here in our area? I think there's two ways that we can do this. Two out of many. There's a lot more, but here's two. The first is we need to be praying for this. Now, prayer may seem like the least action-oriented thing that I could tell you to do, uh, but that's actually the complete opposite side of the story. Getting on your knees and crying out for Jesus to pour out his spirit all over this area is one of the most powerful things that you could ever do. Asking Jesus to come and to meet your neighbors today, to change something in their life, is one of the most powerful things you could do. It's not passive. It's not weak. It's necessary. It needs to happen. Jesus tells us this. Matthew 7, 11 says, if you then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Like I've already said, this is God's plan. So we're not asking for something that we have to question whether or not he wants to give. He wants this. So let's ask. You know, the disciples, after Jesus went up to heaven, they all got together, 120 of them, and they went to the same house, which had to have been cramped, uncomfortable, kind of smelly, and a general nuisance to the host because they stayed there for a long time. But they were all together in one room, and they were all praying from that day until Pentecost. You know what happened on Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came. 3,000 people found Jesus that day just in a little town square, and the church was officially born. When the Great Awakening happened here, in Massachusetts in the 1700s. It was uh, something that lasted for a couple of decades after that point of people finding Jesus, thousands of people. But one of the places that it started at was here in Massachusetts in Northampton uh, at a small congregational church pastored by Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards uh, was getting ready that one week to preach a sermon that he had preached many times before 
which I think is hilarious, because um, that just, it takes guts to preach the same sermon many times at the same church. Um, <laughs> unless you're doing it over like 50 years, I mean, like, if it's in the same year, people are like, okay, dude, got you, thanks. Um, but anyway, and nothing had happened the other, t- the other times. Uh, of his own acknowledgement. So it was even more gutsy to keep preaching the same sermon. Uh, But that week, he felt like God had asked him to do something. He felt like God had asked him to uh, fast and pray for three days leading up to that Sunday. And so he did. He barely slept, he didn't eat, and he, on his knees, kept praying this same simple prayer, Lord, give me New England. And the rest is history. Thousands of people came to know Jesus. It spread across the U.S. It reached Europe. Holy Spirit stuff happened all over the place. And his simple prayer for three days was, God, give me New England. Prayer is necessary. So if we want this, we got to start praying for it. And the other thing that I want to encourage us to do this morning is to share our stories. And now before you tune me out, because you're like, oh, great, now we're getting to the evangelism part of it, and I, I don't do that, and blah, 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 whatever. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about, actually. I'm not talking about the four spiritual laws. I'm talking about how has Jesus changed your life? If you're a follower of Jesus, he's changed your life. Guaranteed. There's something different You've gone through something where on the other side you've seen where he's held your hand, where he's walked beside you, where he's loved you and he's cared for you. You have a story of the life change that Jesus can bring. And we need to be sharing it. We need to be holding out our hands and saying to people, I know a place where truth and dream intersect. I know a place where hope and reality connect. And it's in the presence of Jesus. Do you want to come there with me? Do you want to encounter that this morning? We need to remember the the wonder and awe that we had when we first encountered Jesus. Now, maybe you think that you don't have a story. Uh, I often fall into this. I grew up in the church. My parents were pastors. And so my thought is often something along these lines of, Okay, so I'm going to start telling people about how I like, got baptized when I was 11. And people are going to be like, great, where's the uh, point of this? But that's not the reality. That's just me overthinking it. The reality is, is that in my life, there have been places where I have seen Jesus come down and meet me. Not necessarily talking about conversion stories, but stories of life change, stories of hope, stories of the power of Jesus in your life. Maybe we need reminded of this. So I want to remind us this morning. Let's do something that I I think I'm making up this word, which I love. You know you're a preacher when you love to make up words, right? Uh, Communal remembering. Let's do this a little bit this morning. Here's what I want to do. I want to throw out options for you of ways that you may have been touched by the power of Jesus. Stories that you might have in your life. And here's what I want you to do. If that's you, throw your hand up. So here's some options. Here, good, good. We're we're on the right. So here's some ones. Who has a story of Jesus healing your body or the body of somebody you love? Now, I'm not talking about like 
you had a headache and you took some Excedrin and then an hour later your headache was gone. Like, okay, that's nice in that day. But that who has the story of like something in your body was way off. There was no option you had except for Jesus. And yet that thing is gone, was gone, has been left. Anybody have one of those stories? There we go. Thank you. Who, has, who could say without a doubt, married people, that there's no shame in this because this is just the reality. Who could say without a doubt that if you didn't have Jesus in your marriage, you would not be married today? And who could give an example of how that's true? No shame in that. But let me tell you something. You know what your neighbors need? This is real. You know what people at your kids' school, parents at your kids' school need? Your neighbors, your friends, whoever it is, they need to know that when they're in that place, that there's a power that could reach down that can change their marriage too. Because they're just getting divorced. They're just walking away. They need to know that there's something else that can come that can change their lives, that can bring hope where they think it's hopeless. Start sharing those stories. Who here, let's get real personal, right? Work it out, work it out. Who here has been freed from addiction? I'm talking life change, freedom. It's not on you anymore. Powerful, change broken off from addiction. Who here has gone through a period of mental illness? Whether it's anxiety, depression, fill in the blank, keep going. Times where you weren't even able to get out of bed. You couldn't leave your house because it was too much. Anybody been through a period like that? And yet in the middle of that, you encountered the love and the comfort and the reality of a God who meets you when you're broken? Anybody have one of those stories? Okay, let's keep going. I told you, I want you to share these stories. We got to start this river. Was anyone here abused? any type of abuse. And yet today you can stand and you can say, I know Jesus. I can live my life. This doesn't own me anymore. Anybody have one of those stories? You need to share your stories. And how about this? Anybody here ever been broke? No money, no money for your rent, no money for your mortgage, not even sure where food's going to get on the table no job, and yet you had a good father, and he provided. And somebody called you up and brought over food. You keep your hands up. Keep them up. That's good. Somebody called you, brought over food. Somebody sent a check in the mail. Somehow you got a job offer that like you hadn't even really applied for, or who knows what it is. Anybody ever had that kind of a story? For the rest of us, if you didn't raise your hand, let me tell you what. If you've encountered Jesus You have a boring, not so interesting, not very exciting story of encountering Jesus, of having your life changed, of seeing your family changed, of knowing something that's dramatically changed everything. You have hope restored. You have love renewed. You have been given new life. Does anybody have one of those stories? Start pouring out your jar. It needs to go into the river. That's our job. That's our role. This week, give somebody an opportunity to encounter the extraordinary. Hold out your hand and invite them to grab a hold of it and to jump. Because something will happen if they're willing. As we come to an end, I want to have the worship team come back up. Maybe you're sitting here and the same thought keeps running through your head. And you're saying... This is great, Stephen, but I don't have one of those. 
I've never encountered Jesus. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I did encounter Jesus, but I desperately need a new story because I got stuff. I'm at a place where I need Jesus to work something powerful in my life. Here's the good news. He wants to. He wants to meet you right here, right now, and he wants to leave you in awe of how much he loves you, of how much he wants to change you. Wherever you're coming from, that's the truth for you. He wants our reality to be filled with wonder and awe. He doesn't want them separated. He wants us to jump into it. After we sing a few songs, I'm going to be back up, and I'm going to give you a a strong why not invitation. And so I want to encourage you, as we're singing, to just in your heart start asking, what if? Start asking that simple question and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in you to bring you to the place where you're able to say, why not? Let's stand. We're going to pray. Now, I want to throw this out there also. If you feel at any point like the Holy Spirit's uh, speaking to you, giving you a word for the church, I'll be standing right over here. Come and tell me during uh, the songs. So once again, what if? Let's be awestruck by the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. Jesus, we just say that we want to jump. We want to be fully immersed in your river. We want to be fully immersed in your plan living lives that reflect that. And we want other people to know that reality desperately. So come and move, Holy Spirit. Just this morning, we ask for you to come and to bring change into our lives. Renew us. Restore us. Show us your love, Jesus. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.